The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Our Father, we would grow closer to you. That's what we want. And we pray that that you would show us the way to do that. That we would be willing to, to discipline ourselves to follow your path. This we ask in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, thank you for waking up early and getting, getting here. Um, I know that's no small task. Um, a couple housekeeping things. The way these typically work is that we do about three 45-minute sessions uh, throughout the morning with some breaks sprinkled in between. So please go get some more donuts and more coffee during the breaks because I don't want to have to bring any of those home. Um, Jude and Rowan probably would be okay if I brought some home, but they don't need it. Um, anyway, so we'll do three sessions, 45 minutes each, um, on, on different but related topics that fall under the idea of the rule of prayer. If at any point during, uh, during the sessions you have questions or comments, um, feel free to raise your hand and I'll call on you. I will probably repeat back what you say, not because I'm trying to stall or because I don't understand what you're saying, but because we are recording these, because we have a number of people who wanted to be here today who couldn't because they were traveling or had other things going on. So um, anyway, so I think that's it as far as any sort of housekeeping. Um, I wanted to start off by... by uh, using an analogy, um, because we're talking today about the rule of prayer. Um, And so when I was a Latin teacher, I would often have students or their parents ask me what they or their students could do to get better grades, to become better at Latin. So what do you think I told them? Study. 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 Make flashcards. Translate sentences. Come meet with me after school for an hour or 30 minutes. The point of these pieces of advice is that if you want to become a more proficient Latin student, then you need to work hard to do it, and you need to plan to do it. There's an analogy, I think, here with the Christian life. The point of today is for us to talk about how we can be proficient Christians who understand the need to organize our lives around spiritual practices intentionally, so that we are formed and shaped into who we want to be. And up front, I want to say there is a a certain thinker and writer who's going to be figuring very prominently today. I'll be quoting him a number of times, and even when I'm not quoting him, he will be in the background. His name was Martin Thornton. Martin Thornton was an English Anglican priest who did a lot of work on the topic of parochial or parish theology, uh, theology of the remnant, and ascetic theology. Um, He was the canon chancellor of Truro Cathedral. He lived from 1915 to 1986, and he wrote a number of really important books that I recommend to you, and I'll bring them up. I forgot them there in my bag down in the office. Um, But four four books that he wrote that are really important. Uh, The first is Christian Proficiency, which is a book that will figure prominently into what we're doing today. Um, A book called English Spirituality, where he traces the pastoral theology within the church in England, going back prior to the Reformation, but up through the Reformation as well. He has a book called Pastoral Theology, a Reorientation, 
which is a little bit more of a technical book, probably geared more towards uh, pastors and spiritual directors, but it's still a really helpful uh, resource. And then finally, he has a book on the topic of spiritual direction, which will come up today later. And all of these books form sort of the background of what we're going to be talking about and discussing today. Our goal is to utilize Thornton in introducing a framework and a lexicon for us here at St. Paul's by which we can better understand and enhance our spiritual spiritual journeys. Now, the fundamental underlying assumption of today is that we all want to be proficient Christians. We all want to be proficient Christians. Not everybody wants to be a proficient Christian. They might want to be a Christian Or they might want to be proficient, but they don't always want to be proficient Christians. And that's okay. Um, With people in that situation, the goal is really not to convince them. Um, If they want to do that, they'll seek it out. If not, that's okay. Proficiency as a term really is about mastering skills or becoming skilled or competent in a certain discipline or an area of expertise. And of course, increasing competency in any area requires us to train requires sustained effort, and requires practice. When I was on the debate team in college, my first year, it was kind of overwhelming because I had never done debate before. And so during the summer, we spent a lot of time doing research, watching other people do debate, practice debating ourselves. And the second year, we, were, we improved quite markedly um, just through the, that training. It, again, we became more proficient. This applies to Christianity. The same principle applies to Christianity. We do not grow in holiness by accident. We do not grow in holiness by accident. We don't grow in holiness by osmosis, just by being around holy people. We grow in holiness through hard work, through training ourselves, through discipline, through practice. So asceticism is necessary. Asceticism is spelled A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M. Asceticism is is when we, is discipline, spiritual discipline. So um, throughout most of Christian history, the most ascetic people in the church were usually the monastics, the monks and the nuns, very ascetic. They live their lives around a discipline. You know, they they do prayer seven, eight times a day. Um, Most of us can't do that, not at least, not at the rate that they are, um, that they do it. But one of the geniuses of Anglicanism is that we believe that the lay person is capable of living an ascetic life, perhaps of a different form than a monk or a nun. We don't do seven offices during the day. We have two offices, morning and evening prayer, and you can do them in 15 to 20 minutes. So the idea is that we take the same kind of dedication that a monk might have, but we we apply that in our various circumstances in our secular lives. Secular, of course, meaning non-religious as far as um, we're not monastics. There are really, when, when we talk about ascetical theology, there are kind of two extremes we have to avoid. One extreme is when people have no real difference between emotion and devotion. No difference between emotion and devotion. So they live and die by the emotions, basically. You know, when things are great, they have a mountaintop experience with God, they get excited, and then, of course, they can't sustain that level of excitement, so inevitably they will crash, and things become more desolate in their spiritual walk. There's a very big difference between emotion and devotion. It would be kind of foolhardy, I think, to think that most monks 
want to do every office every day. I'm sure there are times when they go to prayer and they think, oh, I was right in the middle of you know, doing something important and now I've got to come do prayer. Of course, prayer is important. Um, but, but the point being, we're not driven, when, in, our, in our spiritual pursuits, we're not driven purely by emotion. There is a difference between emotion and devotion. And sometimes devotion is worth doing even when you don't feel it. And there's sort of a second extreme that we should avoid as well that I think is related, which is devotion without discipline. Devotion without discipline is not good. Um, We need to have discipline because otherwise it's chaos. God is not a God of chaos. What is the first thing God does in scripture? He orders chaos. And so we, through discipline, want to order our lives as well. And it should be pointed out, too, that these two extremes together, the the emotion and devotion uh, collapse and then devotion without discipline, really are at the the heart of many problems that we have in America with Christianity um, in terms of people who reject the faith or or who who, – that's actually too strong of a term. So like the other day I got a haircut and, and my hairdresser and I were talking, really nice guy. We had a great conversation and he said something like, you know, well, I'm spiritual. I'm not really religious, you know, and that actually characterizes a lot of at least people my age. I mean, it's true in generations that preceded us, but it's really that that demographic has grown. The nuns, we call them N-O-N-E-S, not the good kind of nuns. Um, and um, and so but but that's kind of what uh, they are expecting. Right. They want to have a sort of devotion, a kind of vague emotional experience um, that doesn't really tie them down into a community too much or to a specific rule or um, a specific way of doing things. You know, if you, if you can kind of keep it vague, you can cherry pick from anything you want. You know, you could do some Buddhist practices or some Islamic prayers, you know, uh, or, or some Christian prayers or whatever, um, and, and everything's kind of just okay, you know. But the problem, again, is there's going to be no real clear progress because those practices aren't being picked with the view of, of spiritual development and progress, it's kind of just cherry picking like a consumerist would cherry pick, you know, catering to their already, um, already developed tastes and preferences. So as we talk about this too, it's, it's important to realize, because we're going to use the word discipline a lot, and that sounds really um, maybe legalistic or, um, or tough, you know, but the word disciple and discipline are related words. And so for this reason, devotion and ascetic, that is the training, the, the discipline, are intricately related. So, so Martin Thornton actually says, although dev- devotion may incite us to prayer, only ascetic can tell us how to do it. So we may get really excited and say, I want to pray. It's good to channel that into something that's disciplined. And to set it up in such a way that we can keep doing it even when we don't have the feeling of devotion. You know, some days we don't wake up and feel very pious. So the goal for us as Christians is to grow in holiness by becoming proficient, by becoming proficient. There are theological underpinnings to this, um, and we won't go into this too much, but it is important to note that the goal of theology, all of Christian theology, is not to be smarter than other people, is not to um, is not to just get lost in books, but rather to help us become better at prayer. All of theology 
is about becoming better at prayer, which means all of theology is very important. And Christianity, I think Thornton calls it the most efficient religion because our doctrine and our prayer are so related. You know, it's not like our doctrine is just kind of an extra thing that doesn't really matter. It has direct bearing on how we pray and how we live. So for Thornton, he begins with the Trinity, and he talks about how there are two poles of human experience that the Trinity speaks to. There's transcendence and there's imminence. Transcendence and imminence. So obviously transcendence, that idea that, that when we look at the world, when we, when we have experiences, you know, you look at the, at the Grand Canyon, you know, and you just say, there's got to be something. I mean, this isn't just a hole in the ground. This is beautiful. And that beauty has to come from somewhere, you know, and, and, and we begin to think about this idea of, of a first mover who created everything and, um, and, and the various different kinds of causes that brought things about. And, and so there's this idea that, that whatever is physical is, is perhaps good, but, but we can't quite, it, it's not all that there is, you know, we know there's something more to it. And so that's, that's certainly one pole of, of human experience. The, the problem with that is, at least by itself, is that, you know, you, you never quite know what it is because it's totally other. It's, it's transcendent, you know, it, it doesn't exist in this realm. The other, the other pole of human experience is imminence, that feeling that we get sometimes of, of I'm not alone, you know, I'm, uh, God is here with me or something is here with me um, that's guiding me, that I, I can kind of feel its presence um, moving me. Um, and so, so these are two opposite poles, really. Um, and the problem is that in most religions in the world, besides Christianity, one of these is often emphasized at the expense of the other. And that has bad, bad consequences to it. So if you only ever emphasize transcendence, that, that, yeah, this isn't all that there is. There's something out there, but we don't know what it is. Okay, you get a kind of deism, um, or, 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 yeah, perhaps some Eastern religions do this as well. The issue is that that then reduces everything to ethics because you can't talk about theology in those contexts. I mean, you can think about, about, um, about moral therapeutic deism, which is a huge problem. That's, I think, kind of what we're facing today in our culture, moral therapeutic deism, where it doesn't really matter what you believe about God proper. You know, um, you, can, you can believe he's a she, you can believe, you know, he's a spirit, only a spirit, you can believe um, there are multiple gods, you know, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you do good things. Well, that's fine. I mean, you know, we can certainly uh, encourage, yes, it's better if you do good things than bad things. However, um, if you have no real theology, if you have no real metaphysic, if you can't account for the way that the world is, well, then your ethics or your idea of ethics are always going to be ever-changing reflections of the larger culture in which they arise. And so you'll get churches that begin to condone certain practices that are explicitly condemned by the Christian tradition, by the scriptures themselves, because they've totally sold that out, and then they, they have no real objective foundation to rely in, and so they, they will just end up adapting to whatever the culture says is good. So that's not so. That's not good. If we um, actually, I'm sorry. That was that's the implication of imminence, not transcendence. The implication of transcendence is that we actually begin to renounce the world, right? Because we understand there's something otherworldly, um, and so uh, this is where you know you get really extreme asceticism. Um, monks could, if you do, if you go become a monastic for the wrong reasons, you could do this, right? The world is bad, 
And so therefore, I'm going to go live in a cloister away from the world, and I'm not going to engage with the world anymore because it's just bad. There's nothing redeemable about it. So if, we're, if we emphasize imminence too much, then we get only ethics that are always changing. If we emphasize transcendence, we end up getting what we might call ascetic disdain. We, don't, we, we, we just want to renounce the world and, and get away from people and things. Christian theology has these two poles in them, in it, right? We have the person of the Father. Jesus says, no one has seen the Father except the Son. So there's this kind of hiddenness of God, right? He's, he's other. We also have the eminence pole in the person of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He's with us. We can feel his presence. He moves us. He guides us into all truth. So how then are these two poles connected in in Christian theology using the Trinity? Well, the answer is in the second person of the Trinity, in the incarnation. Jesus Christ, who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, takes on human nature, steps into time and space, becomes like us in every way except for sin. And what this does, the genius of Christian theology, is that it, it prevents us from reducing everything to pure ethics, because we still have this kind of metaphysic. We understand how the Trinity, well, as much as we can understand how the Trinity relates to each other. But also, it gives us that eminence. This is a God who comes near. But we don't have a purely ethical view of the world, and we don't have a a view of the world where we have to renounce it completely, but rather we have a view of the world that it is redeemable, and that that's part of our job, is to participate with God in order to bring about that redemption. And that redemption is only possible because Jesus is truly God and truly man. By joining human nature to God, he actually recreates our human nature. He restores it to what it should have been. And we experience that recreation when we're baptized, when we become incorporated into Christ. Romans chapter 6, Paul's very clear. This is what baptism is. It is a baptism into the death of Christ and then an identification or a resurrection with him. And so this means that being a Christian is not primarily, or, or perhaps we should say it's not um, at first about what we do. It's about who we are. It's about what's happened to us. And what a thing is determines what the thing does, right? What a thing is determines what it does and what it can do. And in Christ, who are we? We are a new creation. And according to To St. Paul, then, this idea of being a new creation, this identity that we have, expresses itself in how we act. Now, it's possible that we reject the grace that God gives us, that we don't put in the work, that we ignore uh, everything that he sends our way as far as gifts to make us um, conform to his image, in which case we are not not Christians, we're bad Christians, So we can be Christians who don't live up to what we should be, but we're still Christians uh, if we've been baptized. And what that means is that the whole sacramental system is available to us as Christians. So at any point, we can stop being a bad Christian and start being who we are. And as a Christian, of course, there, there are no individual Christians, or at least purely individual Christians, because to be a Christian is to become a part of the body the church. And the church, of course, needs all of its parts to work properly or efficiently. 
So for the church to be healthy, it has to live through sacramental food and exercise, just like anybody has to live through food and exercise. Every member of the church, every single member of the church contributes to the life of the church's mission. And the church's mission, of course, is to redeem the world. We live out that mission by receiving God's love and then communicating it to the world. So there's a lot of, um, in our culture today, a lot of questions about masculinity and femininity, right? Um, We don't really know what those are. In the church, those relationships are based on action and reception. So uh, when the husband and wife are married um, in the prayer book, it tells us that this is a symbol of the mystical unity betwixt Christ and his church. When we come into the church, when we're baptized, it's something that happens to us. We receive. What is the church called in relation to Christ? The bride of Christ. We receive from him. This uh, symbolism is actually really pertinent in baptism. So the blessing of the baptismal font um, at the Easter vigil. And, and actually, baptismal fonts used to sort of be built to look like birth canals. Um, and the idea there was that, you know, we are receiving. We are we are feminine in relation to God, and then we're sent out into the world where we become priests, turning the common into the holy, redeeming the world. And so then the the world becomes passive and we become active as the church. So if we are to receive God's love through the sacraments, through prayer, through spiritual exercise, and in order to communicate that out, because we are the sole channel of grace to the world as the church, then this requires us to work hard in terms of becoming, in action, what we are in Christ for the good of the church, but also for the good of the world. And one of the ways that we do that is through the rule or regula of prayer. Regula is the Latin word that means rule. And that rule, and we're going to talk about it a lot today, has three components to it. The mass, the daily office, and private prayer. The mass, daily office, and private prayer. We're going to talk about how all three of those things are connected in our next session. One who decides to follow the rule is called a regular Christian. Not, of course, to diminish them by saying they're just normal but they're regular because they follow the regula, the rule. Of course, not every Christian follows the rule, but it is certainly available to all Christians. And so Martin Thornton describes a regular as, as a layman who embraces the Christian life as opposed to the keen territorial who goes to church fairly often and tries to say prayers now and again. It implies status more than quality, efficiency more than keenness or brilliance. In other words, um, you can't necessarily judge someone who doesn't intentionally try to live by the rule. You know, they might come to church on Sundays, and that's really nice, and they might, you know, do some prayers every so often or, you know, do a Bible study, and that's fine. Um, it's not the same thing as, as being a regular, though, which is a little different. Um, the rule is not required to be holy or to be a good Christian. So just because you don't pray the daily office every day, we're not making a judgment about you. Um, we're just saying these are the means God has given his church. Um, and it's real, we think this is a good idea to do this. And we encourage you to participate. But if, if there's another way for you or, or this just doesn't work for you, then okay. 
It should be said that, that whatever our rule looks like, um, it should always be understood as a means to an end, as a means to an end, rather than an end in and of itself. So we might think of how Jesus talks about the Sabbath with the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees get really mad because what does he do on the Sabbath? He heals someone. Oh my gosh, can you believe that on the Sabbath? Um, and, and what Jesus points out is that this is a really dehumanizing use of the Sabbath, right? I mean, they are totally missing the point because the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the same thing is true about the rule. The rule is made for us, not us for the rule. The rule is not a law. It's a medicine. It's a medicine to help us get better. And we should be free then to adjust the course of treatment as needed, though typically this should be done with some sort of input from a spiritual director, which is something we'll also talk about later today. If we focus too much on the means rather than the end, well, then we can actually jeopardize the end. We can miss the point. And this, is also, this also means that, that one who observes the rule, one who says, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to Mass on Sundays and red-letter days and as many times as I can, and I'm going to do morning and evening prayer every day, and I'm going to engage in, in private prayer um, in conjunction with a spiritual director. That's great for you. It's not a reason to look down on someone else. There may be a whole host of reasons why um, the rule may not quite work for them. But the end of the day, the rule is to get us from point A to point B, from where we are to where we hope to be. And what this also means is that the rule is completely and entirely voluntary. No one has to do it. It's for those who want to learn. It's for those who want to grow, but it has to be chosen not forced on people. Thornton says it's embraced rather than promised, and that a regular is someone who chooses to undertake these obligations and duties as a way of developing their own spirituality. This also means that even if one does a bad job at keeping the rule, they only stop being a regular if they intentionally decide to stop being a regular. In other words, you can keep the rule poorly or inconsistently. And still be a regular. You might be not great at doing it, but that's what you've chosen to do. And hopefully over time you'll improve. He talks about um, uh, somebody who gives up tobacco for Lent and then on Ash Wednesday starts smoking a cigarette right after the service, you know. And uh, he's, you know, that doesn't mean that they're done for Lent. It just means there's some work to be done there, you know. And that's okay. That's where all of us are, you know. I mean, uh, we all need to work and, and move towards the goal more. The rule is also not legalistic. Um, The rule is for souls who have been enlightened by the spirit of Christ in which there is freedom. And so then you might ask, well, why then do we even need a rule if there's freedom? And that's a good question. There are two extreme personality types, and I think everybody falls towards one end or the other, maybe not as severely as others. There are people who are really overscrupulous. So like Martin Luther was overscrupulous. That was one of his problems. Um, and when somebody's overscrupulous, you know, they have an overactive conscience and they, they will often take on too much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fast every Wednesday and Friday. I'm going to do morning and evening prayer. I'm going to pray the rosary three times a day. I'm gonna, you know, and they, they come up with this long list of things. And then, of course, I mean, maybe they do it for a week, but things get too busy and then they stop doing it. And that's a really... Um, It's not good to take on too much. It's not good to bite off more than you can chew. 
So having a rule says, hey, go to mass on Sundays. And if you can on the red letter days in the prayer book, that's a good start. And, you know, if you can, pray the prayer morning and evening prayer. You can do it in 15 minutes. You know, and then here, here's maybe a couple exercises you can do five, five to seven times throughout the day. Say the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's not too much. That's a really uh, doable agenda for someone. And so, you know, and maybe they don't do it perfectly every day. You know, maybe they only said three Jesus prayers instead of five to seven. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. So, there's, so there are people who are overscrupulous, and the rule helps moderate that. There are also people who are way too lax, way too lax. You know, they're totally fine with being mediocre. They don't need to go to church regularly, or they don't feel like they need to go to church regularly. They kind of do sporadic prayer, you know, if, if at all. Um, and so they never really embrace any discipline. Well, that's not really good either. And so the rule gives them a standard and says, hey, you, this is where you should be. So neither scrupulosity or, um, or laxity are good. The rule moderates both of those things, reigning in extreme tendencies. So it's not legalistic. It gives us, a, it gives us a, a principle out of which to live. And another great thing about the rule is that it's not dependent on our feelings. The rule is not dependent on our feelings. And it's not a burden. If you don't have a rule, if you just make it up on your own, what you're going to do spiritually, um, you're actually being subject to the tyranny of freedom. Right? I mean, we've all experienced this. You go to the grocery store and there's like 50 different kinds of bread. And you're like, I don't, why are there 50 different kinds of bread? I just need one loaf of regular, you know, wheat bread. I don't need 50 different kinds of bread. There, too much choice is actually uh, paralyzing, crippling. There are millions of devotions, millions of devotions. I mean, even within the Catholic traditions of Anglicanism, Roman Catholicism, and Orthodoxy, there's tons of them. Plus, if you, you know, are into evangelical practices as well, there's a ton of those. Different devotional books, different approaches, um, so many options. And some may be good substantively, some may be bad substantively, and that, that's fine. Um, and it's, you know, if somebody picks one, that's, that's their prerogative to, to kind of go that direction. What's not good is moving from thing to thing. I'm going to do morning and evening prayer from the 28 prayer book for a month, and then I'm going to do morning and evening prayer from the 79 prayer book, and then I'm going to just do Jesus calling for a month, and then I'm going to go back to the 28 prayer. That's not a really healthy, sustainable, stable way of doing things. So by submitting to a rule, we experience a good kind of freedom, a framework that brings us stability, and that stability allows us to flourish. But it doesn't, it doesn't quench freedom. It actually frees us up. Right, I mean, just like, um, just like when you play a board game, there have to be rules in the board game. And once you understand the rules, the game can be fun. You can actually enjoy playing the game. You have freedom to play the game. So similarly in the rule of prayer, it does help to have fences, to have a box. You know, this is where, this is where we play. Um, and once we have that, it, it establishes us in, in a sort of stable way. And the rule also calls us to persevere through seasons where it might feel dry or rote. You know, not every time that you pray morning and evening prayer is it some sort of magical, mystical experience. Sometimes, I think Thornton calls it, he says, it's like cleaning a car. That's not really that fun, but you have to do it. 
you know, making your bed. I don't like making the bed. It's an act of frivolity, but we do it anyways. It's good. So sometimes it will feel, the season will feel drier rote, you know? I mean, just for a couple months, you might say, man, I'm just not, just not feeling this, but I also know this is good for me to do, even when I'm not feeling it. I mean, imagine if we ate like that. I mean, if we let our children eat like that. You know, hey, Jude, eat your broccoli. Uh, I'm not really feeling like eating broccoli tonight. I'm feeling more like eating some of those donuts you brought home from the retreat. <laughs> mm, no, you need to eat your broccoli. Well, I just don't feel like eating my broccoli, you know. And, and, and for some reason, when people talk like that about prayer, we, we act like authenticity is the ultimate measure of, of whether something's good or not, you know. Well, I just don't feel like going to Mass today because it's just, you know, I, I just want to stay at home or I want to go experience God on the links. No, that's bad for you. That's like eating only candy. You know, you need the vegetables that are the mass and the daily office and all that. So Thornton says, um, this is kind of his big quote, we, we must learn that the essential truth that Christian prayer is rather like cleaning a car. When we're lucky enough to have a new one, we wash and polish away with enthusiastic further fervor. It is a devotional job. When the novelty wears off, it becomes rather a nuisance and rather a bore, but we can still clean it efficiently. And here is the one vital point. There is no difference whatsoever in the result. It's exactly the same with prayer. To correlate with this, it's important to note that a breach of the rule is not a sin. So if you say, I want to do this, I want to do morning and evening prayer every day. And, you know, you have a real busy day, something comes up, you know, you don't get off work until 7.30 at night, you go home, you haven't eaten dinner, you know, all this stuff is kind of piling on and you just don't do evening prayer, especially if you just forget or something, you know. Um, That's not necessarily a sin. It's especially true if you're sick, you know, I mean, if you're sick, don't come to Mass, you know, Um, stay home. Um, That's okay. But, but even in other times where we, where we fail, it means that we need to practice. You know, it's like, a, it's like when you go to soccer practice or something and you, you, you take a penalty shot and you miss the goal. You know, the coach is probably not going to make you run laps. He's going to say, let's keep practicing. Let's keep shooting. And so that means that failure at the rule should actually be a learning experience for us. What do I need to do differently? Um, perhaps a time for reassessment. I keep missing you know, the prayers that I want to do during the day, maybe you've taken too much, bitten too much off. But a, simply breaching the rule is not a sin. If you, if you have the intention to fast from tobacco during Lent and you smoke a cigarette on Ash Wednesday, that's not a sin. Perhaps it, it reveals um, intemperance, perhaps, a vice maybe, but uh, it's not necessarily a sin in and of itself. Um, so we should think in terms of development, um, and finally, you know, a rule should be flexible. Okay, there are things in the rule that are pretty stable. Should I go to communion? Uh, am I sick? No, then the answer is yes. Right, you should go to communion. Should I pray the daily office? Yes. Um, those are regular things that really don't change a whole lot. But other aspects of the rule, the private prayer element, can absolutely and should change. And there may be a time or a season where, um, where you have to kind of adapt the rule a little bit or, or sometimes you might need to make it more strict or sometimes you might need to loosen it a bit. So for example, when I was teaching full-time in Virginia, we lived about an hour from the school where I taught. So I was commuting two hours a day. And of course, I would leave at 5.30, 6 in the morning because I had to be there by 7. 
It is very hard to do morning prayer at four in the morning. It's very hard to do morning prayer at a school once my students are let in the building. So instead of sitting down with my prayer book doing morning and evening prayer every day, there's an app or a website called um, Cradle of Prayer. And I would play morning prayer on my car speakers as I was driving. Is that optimal? Probably not. Um, it's probably better to sit down with the Bible and with the prayer book and do the, the office as it was supposed to be. But was that the best I could do at that time? Yeah. So for a year, that's what I did. Um, and it was good. It was a good way to start the day, and it was good to be in the rule and, and all that. And, of course, once I stopped teaching full-time, I stopped doing it that way and switched to doing it the, the regular way. But even more than that, I mean, that's, that's really more of a circumstance uh, question. There are... In theory, if we're, if we're living a faithful Christian life, we should be making progress. And as we make progress, our needs will change, especially when it comes to how we do private prayers. And so really, the rule should, um, should be evaluated every so often, maybe every year, every two years. And you say, you know, is this practice doing what I, I need it to do based on where I am now? And it could be that in conjunction with your spiritual director, you decide to... Um, Maybe adapt some things, change some things around, you know, try some different, try something new. Um, those are all good things. So the rule should be flexible. Um, again, the rule's made for us, not us for the rule. And so we might be, we might be flexible. So um, what we're going to do is in our next session, we're going to talk about each of those pieces of the rule, the mass, the daily office, and private prayer, and how they're all connected to each other. But um, I guess I'll just ask, are there any questions right now? And if not, we'll take a few minutes. But yes, Judy. I think that kind of depends on your family situation and your schedule. Um, so for those of you who, who may not be aware, in the very back of the Book of Common, of the 28th Book of Common Prayer, is a section called Family Prayer. And the Family Prayer is really beautiful, really beautiful. Um, and it's much shorter. So you can pray the Collect of the Day and the Lord's Prayer. And then it's like maybe a page and a half of prayers. That's really solid. Um, that's different than morning and evening prayer in the front of the prayer book. Like morning prayer is what we did this morning together. Um, and that takes a little longer. I would say you could probably do family prayer in about 10 minutes, maybe five minutes. Family prayer? Family prayer? Yeah, in the back of the prayer book? Yeah. No, it takes more than that. It only takes me about five minutes. You talk so fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, because all it is is, is collect of the day, Lord's Prayer. And then, I mean, it is just a page of prayer, basically. So it's not long. Well, it's got confession, it's got Thanksgiving. Yeah, there are like little... There's, you know, you're praying for your intercessions, which you can go on about with your own. That's true, that's true. I guess it could be longer than five minutes. But, I mean, it's certainly less than the daily office. There are no scripture readings, there's no psalm necessarily. You could do them with the scripture readings and the psalm if you want to. Um, So I would just say it kind of depends. you know, if, if it's a really busy day, so like Wednesday mornings, we do uh, Wednesday morning mass at 7.30. It is often very hard for me to wake up early enough where I have time to sit down and do the full daily office for morning prayer. So I will sometimes do um, morning prayer or the family prayer from the prayer book 
or I'll do um, St. Augustine's prayer book has a morning prayer that's really abbreviated as well. Um, and that's like, it's like in Our Father, uh, the Creed, and, you know, one, one or two collects. Um, and so, you know, again, you have to kind of adapt probably based on your schedule. I know at times we've done family prayer in the evening, especially when the boys were a little younger, because having us both sit down for 15 minutes to do a full evening prayer is kind of hard when Rowan is screaming at us the whole time. So we'll do family prayer and get it, get it kind of done quickly. Um, so we usually, when we do that, we usually do, uh, include the readings, at least try to include the readings. But now that the boys are a little older, we do the full office morning and evening usually. Um, so I think, again, I think that's one of those things where, um, you would need to probably work that out based on your schedule. Um, it is good to do the family prayer every so often though. Um, uh, family prayer we might do if we have guests over as well, especially non-Anglican guests who are kind of. You know, I mean, they sometimes people like to when they come over, they like to do evening prayer and it's fun to have them. But other times you don't want to th- throw the book at them. Literally, you know, here, here's this prayer book. Use this. You know. <laughs> Good question. Thank you. Sally Lee. What do you define or how do you define prayer? Hmm. I guess in a retreat on prayer, it would have been good to define prayer at the outset, huh? Um, I think prayer is conversation with God um, because, and, and I say conversation, not just talking to God, but conversation with God, because there is an aspect of prayer that should emphasize listening as well as speaking. In fact, I think sometimes the best prayer is receptive listening prayer more than it is us talking. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think it's conversation with God is how I would, or, or I think Thomas Aquinas says it's elevating the mind to God. And which can then include more than a conscious conversation. Um, reading theology, that can be prayer. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about that. Some people like devotional books, and some people you know, sit down with a pipe and a really tough piece of theology, and that's their way of praying. But, um, but I, yes, no matter what we're doing, it can become a kind of prayer because it just requires thinking about God, recollecting God. Yes. Because there are things we can do, I think, that are acts of prayer throughout the day. So, so for example, um, practicing the presence of God. You're thinking, God is, God is present with me right now. And just kind of resting in that. I'm not really thinking about what he's doing, just that he's there. But that totally changes everything. Brother Lawrence was a monk who lived in the, um, he lived in a monastery and was the dishwasher. And he wrote a really profound book called Practicing the Presence of God, where if he was aware of God's presence while he was doing the dishes, it was totally different. The dishes became an act of worship, right? Cleaning the dishes, cleaning a toilet, you know, something like that becomes an act of worship. Whereas if we're just, uh, I'm going to do the dishes and I'm not thinking, he basically we're living as functional atheists in those moments, you know, where we're not aware of God's presence. Um, and so that's, that's, an, that's an act of prayer, even though it's not, dear Lord, Please help me as I'm washing these dishes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And also, I think, in dealing with people, you know, when we see someone and we say, man, that person was created in the image of God and Christ died for that person. That's an act of prayer as well, because we're we're, it's totally changing how we see them. You know, yeah, they cut me off in traffic, but also Christ died for them. That changes things a little bit. I may or it should change things a little bit. I may make fewer gestures at them.
being an active, an active prayer, that can be extended to work. Oh, absolutely. Every job. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Every job is a, an avenue of prayer and of evangelism, too. I mean, depending on what your job is, you can't necessarily straight up preach to someone. But the way that you treat them, the way that you carry yourself, the way you act, if you are doing it from a place of worship and prayer... You know, it should raise some eyebrows. It's like, man, why is Ken so nice all the time? You know, why is he? Why is he so good? Uh, you know, so fair at his job. Um, so anyway, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. Every every act of of vocation or work is an avenue to to pray and worship. I think traditionally gardening may oh. have been avenues to God where you kind of see God. Uh huh. Absolutely. Yeah, gardening and, and agricultural work always is a, is a good avenue for that, which is why it's a shame in our current world where we're so alienated from those processes. You know, I mean, none of us see how our food is made ever, um, and much less participate in the making of it. Um, and so, yeah, it, that, that becomes a problem. Um, absolutely. Kathy? What about the difference between the pre-written prayers mm. and extemporaneous prayers yeah. where, at least for me, with the extemporaneous, I'm more sharing my heart, my yeah. concerns, and these prayers don't always fit the bill. Yeah, so the, yeah, the question about extemporaneous prayer versus, um, versus rote <laughs> prayers. Uh, it's a good one. It's a good one. Um, I So... The rule does not necessarily preclude extemporaneous prayer. Part of your private prayer can be extemporaneous prayer, and part of even the rote prayers can include extemporaneous prayers, like at the office when we say, you know, your own prayers are welcome at this time, or at the Mass when we say the same thing during the prayer for the whole state. Um, there's great value in praying pre-written prayers, because um, it, for the same reason that when I teach a class on literature— I usually will pick old books instead of new books. Um, and the reason for that is not that there aren't good new books written, but like the Iliad and the Odyssey have stood the test of time. Are there books that have been written today that will stand the test of time? Yeah, I think so. But when I'm teaching my students, I don't need to make that judgment myself. I can say, look, here's some books that have really been important. And, and so the prayer book and the hymnal both are that for the church. Is the prayer book, is morning and evening prayer the only way to pray? No, of course not. Um, but the church has received this way of praying and says this has stood the test of time. You know, people have been praying some form of this for 2,000 years now. And um, I was, I, we did an interview for our podcast with a woman who was, um, who was uh, she had been raised Jewish. And she asked her rabbi, and you know, of course, Jew, uh, most Jewish worship is similarly liturgical and rote prayer and things. And she asked him, you know, rabbi, why do we pray these rote prayers when we could do extemporaneous prayer? And he said, you know, at some point, you're not going to have the words to pray. And the liturgy will pray for you. And that's true. And she actually, I think this woman, if I remember, she became Episcopalian and, and ended up going through a divorce and found that that was true in the midst of her divorce. The prayer book was giving her the vocabulary to pray when she didn't have that extemporaneously. Oh, that's a great right. Is that why you go to 930? 
<laughs> but I think, I think, I think that um, there's also a sense in which the prayer book is didactic. It teaches us how to pray, too. So um, we should be able to pray extemporaneously. The question is, what does that look like? So I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, I, so at Liberty, we had in our dorms. Uh, hall meetings every Tuesday night. You had to be back in the dorm at 10 o'clock for hall meeting, and they gave you announcements and updates and things like that. And then after hall meeting, you had these prayer groups. So it was like there was an RA, there were spiritual life directors on the hall, and then there were prayer leaders. And so you'd go, a group of like five guys maybe from your dorm, and, and the prayer leader would give some sort of lesson, you know, maybe a Bible study or whatever. I remember one night we were praying, and we had this one guy who was a little obnoxious in our dorm who was in my prayer group, and he... <laughs> I'll pray tonight. Okay, great. You know, so so it's going to pray. God, we just suck. We just really suck. But you're a good God. So thanks. Literally, that was his prayer, word for word. Was that a good prayer? Not really. No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, you know, it, was, it, was it untrue? Not necessarily. But do you really want to speak to the creator of the world that way? I don't know. Um, and so the point is that by, by sitting through morning and evening prayer, we become formed. I don't think we have to always, every prayer needs to come from the prayer book or from some pre-written source. But if we are taught to pray well using the tradition of the church, then when we do extemporaneous prayer, we'll have been influenced by that and formed and shaped by that, which will improve our extemporaneous prayer. So that would be, I, that's how I would say. And, and I think, I do think that, you know, especially if that's important for someone, that sort of effective uh, aspect of prayer, then the rule becomes really a, a good balance. You know, it's not all rote prayers, but it does anchor you in the tradition. And then in your private prayers, you know, make it a point to do some disciplines that include extemporaneous prayer. Absolutely. Good. Yes, Donna. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. that's great. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think that's a great habit to be in. Um, intercessory prayer is incredibly important. And, you know, there are different ways of thinking about it. I think uh, intercessory prayer should be less about us trying to put the coin in the cosmic vending machine and pull it out and get the result that we want. And more about, you know, let thy will be done. So when we intercede for other people, 
what we're doing or what we should consider it as doing is coming alongside them and bearing their burdens. And that is such important work because like we talked about, this is a body. You know, when one member is sick, all members are sick. And so we need that kind of intercessory work, which is why I'm so excited about what we're doing with the, with the prayer warriors because that's the kind of community we need to be that comes alongside our members and bears burdens with each other. So I think that's a great habit to be in. And I do the same thing. You know, I have the church roster split up on a daily, like Monday morning, Monday evening, Tuesday morning, Tuesday evening. And then I have a a list of prayer requests too that I keep. So I pray the, the prayer request list at least once a day. And then I do, you know, the names from people in the church on Monday morning and then another list on Monday evening. And I think that's a great habit to be in. Because, because it also, a really helpful reason why this is, this is good, it becomes very easy, especially in sort of modern American Christianity, because you think about, for the vast majority of history, people did not have their own Bibles, they did not have their own prayer books, they also were walking by their church every morning on their way to work. So there was morning prayer going on. You know, you stop into church for 30 minutes, you do morning prayer, and then you go work, and then you, on your way home, they're doing evening prayer, you stop in for evening prayer. You know, everything was sort of more communal and corporate. But now you go buy your own Bible at Barnes & Noble or wherever. Um, you buy your own prayer book. We don't live all, you know, close by the church. Um, so we don't do the offices or mass daily. So people do morning and evening prayer. They do devotions by themselves. And it becomes very easy when we do that to focus on me and God. It's just me and God. But it's never just me and God, ever. Even when I'm doing morning and evening prayer by myself, the the prayer of St. Chrysostom at the end of morning prayer, where two or three are gathered. Well, there are two or three gathered here because we're with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven as we pray. So I think that's a really helpful to, uh, there is a vertical aspect to prayer. You know, there is a sense in which, you know, God knows what's on my heart in a way that, that you might not know what's on my heart. At the same time, by habitually interceding for others, we're reminding ourselves that there's a horizontal aspect to this that's so important. And if the horizontal aspect's off, the vertical aspect's going to be off too. So I think it's a great habit to be in. Any other uh, questions? Or comments. Well, great. Well, let's take a um, maybe five, ten minutes. Let's say, yeah, let's take ten minutes. So we'll be back here around ten fifteen. Um, so get some get some more donuts.